Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy. It's Friday, July 27th, 2018, and you're listening to Up to Date, our weekly recap of science in the news. I'm Andre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Uh, we're recording this on a Wednesday, and just today... Wait, wait, wait. I just told found... them it's Friday, Kishore. Oh, shit. The cat is out of the bag. Okay, I will... <laughs> just this week, we found okay. a new source of water on Mars. And that's really exciting because it's not just any old source of water. It's a whole lake of water, and it's actually still in water form. It's actually not ice, which is what we've typically found before. This one comes in a... in kind of a sideways direction. Uh, there is a orbiting spacecraft called the Mars Express, and it's using radar to evaluate the Martian landscape. And it passed over this spot where they got a weird reflection back. And so they started to analyze it, and the uh, on board the spacecraft, it actually does some image processing before it sends it back to Earth. And they saw something weird, but they couldn't figure out what it was, so they had to do another pass over that area again and they saw the weird thing again but it didn't add up to anything they'd seen so finally scientists had them had the spacecraft send the raw data and when they got the raw data it was really clear that there was a reflection coming off of this area that the radar in pattern indicated that there is a submerged lake here and what's really exciting about this is it's similar in depth it's about 1.5 meters below the surface uh, or 1.5 kilometers before, uh, below the surface, and the lake is about one meter deep. It's really similar to submerged lakes that we see up below Greenland. And in those areas, we have found different forms of bacteria. Yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, it's pretty it's it's a pretty spectacular finding. And of course, the media have covered it uh, pretty extensively this week. Uh, but one of my favorite uh, coverages or, or sort of retorts, I should say, came from Sean Carroll, uh, you know, the physicist at Caltech. And you know, he was he was responding to one of the media outlets was reporting a scientist saying, hey, you know, there's a there's a good chance that, you know, there's going to be life on Mars. Uh, in, in inside this lake. And uh, Sean Carroll said, that's like me buying a lottery ticket and saying, there's a good chance I'm going to win the lottery. Yeah, there's basically no chance of that because the radar image uh, tells them that this is fairly briny water. So the chance that life is living in a lake with that much salt in it uh, is is next to zero. But I think it gives us hope that there might be more submerged lakes elsewhere on Mars. And anytime you you say, hey, if there's one, what's the likelihood that there's more? I think that's actually a reasonable approach. And so 
they'll be targeting some areas and looking with this sort of new radar mechanic for these submerged lakes. And hopefully one of them turns up life. Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, I, I don't want people to be disappointed if there isn't life. I think there's so many interesting findings that we can get from just the just looking at at the composition of the lake and and all of the sort of chemical elements. I think sometimes the chemistry gets short shrift if it, if there isn't biology involved. Hey, wait, just just think about the announcement if we do find life on Mars. I mean, that would be a big deal. But still, what we're talking about is somebody would be like, we found a bacteria. You know, it's not going to be this spectacular announcement, even if we do find life. So I think tempering the expectations is absolutely right. But I think that hope, that hope of actually finding something is what keeps us motivated. That's true. And and it, and if there was, you know, a bacterium that was found, it would might it would be really pretty cool to figure out what it's like and what its features are and, you know, how it behaves and everything. I mean, I think that would be super fascinating. So I want to see how we figure out the name for it. <laughs> <laughs> so you've you've recently become the uh, proud owner of a kitten. Yes. Yes, I have. And uh, does your kitten love you? Of, of course it does, because it's clearly infected me with a brain parasite <laughs> telling me right, that right. I love it. So, you know, a lot of people have very close relationships with their pets and a lot of dog owners in particular have, you know, these these kinds of ideas that their that their dogs really are their best friends, that they really do um, understand them in ways in which maybe I, I would argue that cat lovers don't quite have such high expectations for the kind of social interaction, you know, that that dog owners do. Um, so what if I told you that, in fact, dogs do seem to have empathy for us and that training dogs to be guide dogs doesn't actually make them care more? Would that surprise you? Well, the first part doesn't surprise me. Yeah, I would. I do believe dogs have some, you know, uh, some mutual desire, some mutual af- affinity towards us. So that makes sense that they would have empathy towards us. But why wouldn't it operate like human empathy does? Yeah, well, I mean, it kind of does. Um, so there's a paper that was published this week called Timmy's in the Well, Empathy and Pro-Social Helping in Dogs in the Journal Learning and Behavior. Um, there are a lot of things I like about this paper. One is just its simplicity. And to me, you know, the best studies are the ones that are super simple and tell you something that, you know, you didn't expect to find. The other thing that I like about it is that it was the lead author is a woman named Emily Sanford, and she did the research when she was an undergraduate, and it's getting a lot of press, which I think is always pretty cool. She's now a graduate student at Johns Hopkins, but uh, she did the work at McAllister College. In any case, what she did is is uh, she and her colleagues set up this test in which she took uh, 34 dogs and their owners, and she put the owners behind a kind of trap door, And uh, then she had the owners either cry in distress or hum. So they're still vocalizing, but it doesn't sound like a distressful emotional signal. Uh, Half the dogs, by the way, were trained guide dogs and the other half were just, you know, your, your regular man's best friend. And it turns out that the dogs were equally likely to open the door regardless of whether their human was humming or crying, but they were much faster to do it uh, when the human was was crying than when they were humming. And if the dog was not stressed by the sound, that is, if you could, you know, you could monitor their heart rate and various other signs of stress, and if the dog was able to suppress their own sort of stress response, then they were much they, they were much faster at opening that door. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, that's completely interesting. Where do the guide dogs come in play, though? 
Well, they wanted to see whether training a dog to be a, a, a sort of uh, actually maybe were they you know what I, I might have misspoken. I think they might be therapy dogs, not guide dogs. OK, I guess that's different, right? That is different. So, yeah. So they're therapy dogs that presumably are are sort of trained to read people's emotions. But it turns out that the dogs actually, in terms of how they're trained, are more trained towards obedience and rule uh, observation rather than empathy. And so one of the sort of corollaries of this paper is that maybe we should be, you know, training dogs to really recognize emotions, not just be obedient. <laughs> but yeah, I thought I thought this this relationship between stress and, um, you know, the ability to sort of tamp down your own emotions in order to help someone was really interesting. And they they, they do point out that we see some similar behaviors in young children, um, children who get very upset, uh, seeing someone else upset, don't do very well in terms of helping that person. But a child who can see someone who is upset uh, and not get upset themselves can actually help them. And this this sort of comes in line with um, some of the work that Paul Bloom recently has been talking about. So we had him on the show uh, to talk about his book Against Empathy. And sort of one of his main arguments was that, you know, if you really do feel what someone else feels, that can lead you to make the wrong decisions. Um, so an example that he gives is, you know, you see a picture of a ch starving child in Africa and you send your, you know, $50 donation, but that doesn't change your overall behavior. That really is what underlies the inequality um, between the developed and the undeveloped world. But it makes you feel as though you're doing something. I'm having that an incredible amount of confirmation bias right now, because when you describe the idea of kids going through a similar experience as their pets... I think we can all think of the animal owners out there that do treat their pets like their children and uh -huh. thus have created the same <laughs> behavioral uh, results. This actually, you know, this is a great little study and it, it tracks with what our experience of dogs are to to the most part. I guess they are really our best friend. Yeah. And it turns out the dogs that didn't open the door, it's not because they didn't care. It's because they cared too much. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I have one recommendation for a series that's going on. If you're in the U.S., uh, NPR is running a series all week on science related to traumatic brain injury, uh, but specifically in a military context. And and we've had guests previously on the show that have talked about uh, DOD-funded research into really looking at this because the sources of, of traumatic brain injury in the military are numerous. There's everything from combat-related issues to what was discussed earlier this week, which which was surprising to me, which was something called blast exposure. Uh, and they highlighted two different officers that that would test and and train people on using these shoulder-fired, shoulder-mounted, like RPG-type systems. And when they would shoot, you know, it would have a concussive blast when it hit its target. And because they were training people, you better believe that they wanted them to hit their targets uh, with this. And the military, even though they were doing this 20 years ago, had rules in effect to prevent them from shooting too many rounds in, in one day, all based on, on some science. But that science was related just to hearing loss. So they would only be allowed to shoot three of those concussive blasts. But the thing is, they would shoot three, and then the next guy would shoot three, and then the next guy would shoot three. And all the while, they were still standing in the middle of an area that would receive a concussive blast. And now a few of these officers have reached their 40s and are experiencing symptoms that we 
associate with TBI, like a loss of like spatial uh, development. They they have, have bouts of dizziness. They they're having very mild memory uh, loss in this case. Is that consistent with what you know could happen from something like this, where they haven't had like a combat injury, but they're just in an area where there's like concussive blasts happening and repeatedly? Yeah, I mean, if you just think about, you know, it doesn't, again, we don't have to have necessarily a really strong hit that knocks you out. Uh, you know, the brain just isn't made for for repetitive trauma. Um, and so, you know, you can certainly see how how that might be the case. There's some really interesting work, though, going in on in uh, Nina Krause's lab at Northwestern University, uh, where she's looking at our auditory processing ability as a marker for concussion. And uh, so she, what she's found is that even, you know, a single hit can change the way you process sound. Uh, and so, in, you know, these mild, you know, even if it's relatively mild, that might not put you into the realm of full-blown, you know, chronic traumatic encephalopathy and, you know, all the, all the markers of that that come after, you know, playing in the NFL for 10 years. Uh, but certainly you can see brain changes even after a single hit in terms of how the brain processes information. So and, and, and what's really exciting to me about her work is that she's also showing that you can use the same kind of um, EEG auditory perception test to look at recovery from the concussion. So once that signal goes back to normal, you can actually see that uh, in the brainwave and, and that can be a sign of recovery. So I think there's exciting work being done. That's interesting because right now it's just cognitive baselines being done, which are, you know, aren't very incredibly accurate instruments because they're based off this qualitative data of you taking these tests of like, you know, basic memory uh, around, you know, your childhood or where you grew up and and some um, and some facts and comparing the baseline to after you've had a traumatic event. Uh, what I find fascinating about this is I think we've heard a lot of of TBI in sports, meaning that sports has to evolve. Their rules have to change. Well, now we're in a situation where just like training in the military is going to have to change too uh, because of, of this as well. And I think it's sort of fascinating as we start to keep peeling that onion about the places where TBI happens. I think we're going to find more and more and more places. Uh, and we have to reconsider going forward how we're going to adapt our systems to this situation while coming up with better system, better methodologies to treat, you know, the thousands, if not millions that have been afflicted with this over the past, you know, decades. Yeah, I mean, I can imagine demolition construction workers having some mild signs of some of these symptoms too. So that's it for Up to Date for this week. Uh, on Monday, we're going to air my interview with Ben Goldfarb, uh, who recently wrote a book called Eager, <laughs> The Surprising Secret Life of Beavers and Why They Matter. Uh, you can tell, Kishore, why I'm really excited about talking about beavers. Uh, it's the Canadian genetics <laughs> in you, isn't it? Yep, it's our national animal. Very excited. Uh, so, so stay tuned for that on Monday, and uh, we'll see you next week. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. <laughs> 